Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to Work Human Radio. I'm your host, Mike Wood, and I have a very special guest this week. I am talking to Joe Gerstant. Joe, how are you? I'm good. How are you today, Mike? I'm great. It is Friday. I am uh, excited for the weekend. I'm sure you are too. But just in case some of our readers don't know kind of who you are, can you give us a brief introduction who you are and kind of what do you do? Yeah. And thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to join you for this conversation. So again, my name is Joe Gerstant and I do workplace diversity and inclusion work. And I've been doing this work for 15, 16 years now. I did it first internally. I was a an internal lead. My last, I guess, real job was for a regional healthcare system where I led their efforts around workforce diversity, having an inclusive organizational culture, and delivering culturally competent care. I mean, that was a really fantastic opportunity. But for the past about 12 years now, I've done this work externally. And so self-employed, most of what I get paid to do is speaking and consulting, a little bit of writing, but all of my work is focused on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and especially the inclusion piece. Most of, I would say, 70 to 80% of my work is focused directly on the idea of inclusion, making sure organizations really understand what it is, and then putting practices and behaviors in place to more consistently deliver it, to make it a reality. I live in Omaha, Nebraska, which I like to refer to as the middle of everywhere. And I have two kids, a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old both of them who are working off their trick-or-treating hangovers today. <laughs> what else can I tell you about myself? I'm a Taurus. How's that? Well, I think there is a part to you that I find is really interesting as a DNI guy is that you are a white male and you probably don't see that a lot. Yeah, I don't. Not only am I a white male, I'm a straight white male. I'm 51 years old. I live in the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest. I'm originally a farm kid and there's not a lot of straight white men doing this work today. And there was even fewer doing this work when I began. And one of the things that I'm doing a little bit more work around today is actually unpacking that story. I didn't really talk about myself all that much for a lot of years, but I've actually built that into a keynote message to talk about kind of what happened between where I started and where I'm at today, because I do this work today. I do it at a certain level. I believe strongly in the work. I believe this is work that I'm called to, but it's also true that 25 years ago, 30 years ago, I would have rolled my eyes at what I do for a living today. A whole bunch of stuff had to change along the way. In my head, in my heart, a whole bunch of stuff had to change along the way. And especially for audiences of predominantly middle-aged white male managers, I'm doing quite a bit of work around unpacking that story and talking about how that change happens and seeing if there's things that we can distill from that story to move this work forward in the workplace. So let's get into that a little bit. Like how did you kind of fall into DNI and what were some of the early struggles that you might have seen as a white male, a white straight male trying to talk to others about diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I didn't fall into it for sure. It took me a long time to find my way to it and a whole bunch of personal change had to happen before 
that could happen. My first work experience after high school was in the United States Marine Corps. I spent four years on active duty. I wasn't thinking about the word diversity at that time, but I for sure learned some of my first diversity lessons there because for the first time in my life, I was around a lot of racial and ethnic diversity. That was a valuable learning opportunity. After the Marine Corps, I went to college. I think I learned some lessons there around gender. I was still an incredibly homophobic person at that point in my life. That started to change when I was in college. After college, I spent six years doing sales and sales management. I made a career change after that and went to work in the nonprofit space. I think a whole bunch of things started to change there. My view of the world and of myself and how we interact, a lot of things changed while I was doing that work. And sometimes there's this idea that because I'm a straight white male doing DNI work that I face a lot of additional challenges. And what I think is true is the opposite of that, actually. There's situations once in a while where someone doubts my credibility or my expertise on this issue because of who I am. I know that that happens once in a while because people have shared that with me. But even doing this work, I still benefit from a tremendous amount of privilege. I get to go in front of audiences and talk about this stuff and I usually start off at least at a neutral spot, if not given the benefit of the doubt. And that's not true of everybody doing this work. I can remember three or four years after having started my business, I got hired by a healthcare system in Michigan. And one of the things that they had me do, I spent a day there, and one of the things they had me do was to make a presentation to their senior executive team. And I had, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes, and I went in there and I crushed it. I did well, and they loved me. A couple of those folks, I think there was nine people on this team, all men, I think two African-American, but they loved me. A couple of them actually pulled me aside and said things like, best DNI presentation I've ever heard. Fantastic. Finally makes sense. They said really fantastic things to me. And I would like to believe those things. The woman who hired me to do that presentation, the woman that found me and hired me was an African-American female. She was their VP of HR, was not on the executive leadership team. And at the end of that day, she thanked me for what I did. She also let me know that I hadn't said anything to that executive leadership team that she hadn't said to them before, Hmm. right? She had hired me specifically because she wanted those men to hear those things. And she felt there was more likelihood that they would actually hear them from me than having heard them from her. And so, and there's been a number of times that I've been involved in this work that I've had to been reminded of my own privilege. Even doing this work, I still benefit from a tremendous amount of privilege. And sometimes that's how it shows up. Who gets the benefit of the doubt? Who's really, really listened to? And so I try to be aware of that and try to use that. But I think it's very rare and it's on a very small scale that who I am or who I'm perceived to be has actually worked against me in this work. So that's something that I've actually heard from many women just in general is that they often have to find a man to say the exact same thing that they were saying in order to be heard. And that, I mean, I'm not a woman, but that has got to be incredibly frustrating and it's a huge waste of money. I mean, it's good for you that you get paid to go out there, but if they just listened to her in the first place, it it would save them a ton of money. And so I think some of the obligation for folks like you and I is to help find ways to make our male peers aware of that because me being aware of it doesn't change anything. I'm still benefiting from it. If I believe in justice, if I believe in equality, if I want there to be a level playing field, 
then when I do get in front of those men, I have to make sure to make some of those points and to start pointing those things out to them. So the example that we're talking about right now, I think it happens quite a bit. And I don't think it has very much to do with hatred. I don't think it has very much to do with what we would define as bigotry. I don't think there's a lot of intention or awareness behind it, but it happens a lot. And it's fairly easy to change, but we've got to have conversations about it. And if you don't bump up against it, which we as men don't tend to bump up against it, it's pretty easy to not see it. So I think once we do see it and have some awareness of it, we need to continue to find ways to point it out to other folks. I think, you know, just in hearing the story and thinking about it a little bit, I think it comes down to hearing what you are expecting to hear from the audience that you're expecting to hear it from. So we are used yeah. to taking orders for men to, you know, the man in the room is going to be the one who makes the decision. So I think when people have that natural aversion to hearing a new voice, but if we can make that more commonplace and more valuable in that new voice has a new perspective on things, just going up against that, I think it could really help change things, but it's an uphill battle. There's a little bit of human nature baked into that. So just being a little bit more aware of it and intentional about it. And I think, you know, designing against some of that stuff. Another way human nature shows up is in most meetings, in most conversations, if there's six or seven folks involved, two or three of those people are going to dominate the conversation. And we've all been in those meetings and we know it's going to happen, but we haven't done anything to design against it. If we don't want that to keep happening, how are we going to have meetings differently? I think it's fairly easy to fix. I think women disproportionately being interrupted in meetings is fairly easy to fix. But you got to start by pointing it out and having a conversation about it. And then instead of relying on our own good intentions and saying things like, well, we're not going to do that anymore, what kind of practices and rules are we going to put in place to actually push back on that behavior that keeps happening over and over again? Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit to talking about when you first started out, you mentioned that you were, I guess, raised or like in your own background that you started off as homophobic. And I think that a lot of people when they grow up are taught to either marginalize or be afraid of the groups that they're not around. When I was a kid, I grew up in a predominantly white area and I was naturally afraid of if I met, you know, another race or culture or something, I don't know what to do. Or you're taught that being gay is wrong or something like that until you actually meet people that are gay or that you meet people that are of a different race. You realize, oh, oh, they're just like everybody else. But I think that getting around that fear, can you just talk about kind of like how your own kind of you know, experience with that. And how did you change your views on the world? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you talked about meeting people. I think that's one of the most valuable tools for change that we have. It's really easy to have real certainty about other people that you don't know. It's really easy, at least in my experience, it's easy to distrust or to hate people that you don't know. Maybe that's not true of everyone. Maybe some folks are inherently a little bit better or healthier than I was. But it was very easy for me to hate people and have great certainty about people that I had not met. That all becomes a lot more difficult once you get to know them. And early on in my life, I wasn't seeking any of that out. It happened by accident. I didn't enlist in the Marine Corps to meet other people and learn about other cultures, but it was one of the things that happened. If you would have asked me when I was 18 years of age, if I was in any way, shape, or form racist, I would have said, absolutely not. 
and I would have been sincere. I would have meant that. But at that point in my life, my entire idea, my entire understanding of racism was blind hatred of someone based on the color of their skin. And that didn't make any sense to me. I didn't hate anyone. But had I picked up racist ideas and attitudes and beliefs at 18 years of age? Absolutely, I have. Most of that stuff I wasn't even aware of, the stuff that I was aware of didn't register to me as being racist because they weren't hatred in nature. And so I had a bunch of these experiences in the Marine Corps of getting to know people and being surprised to learn things about them. And sometimes when I was paying attention, that gave me the opportunity to think about, well, if I was surprised to learn this, why did I expect something different? Where did that expectation come from? And what I became aware of while I was in the Marine Corps, even though I wasn't using the word bias at the time, what I became very aware of is that I went into relationships with expectations, oftentimes rooted in racial stereotypes. And that's how a lot of bias shows up. It doesn't have anything to do with hatred. It has to do with these things that we think we know about other groups of people. And you don't have to be like formally taught those stuff. You just absorb that stuff from our culture, from the way that people are portrayed in television and in movies. And, and we all absorb that stuff. So I didn't think I was racist, but I had a whole bunch of racist ideas and beliefs. I didn't think I was sexist, but I had a whole bunch of sexist ideas and beliefs. And I had to bump up against people who were different than I was. I had to get to know them. I had to have conversations about race and gender to realize that other people were having different experiences. And so I think there's a lot of small things in there that have big outcomes, being exposed to different people, different people's stories, because especially early on, you live in a fairly narrow universe. You see what you see and you think that's the entirety of things. You don't realize that people that are perceived to be different than you are sometimes in the same places and spaces having a very different experience because they're being treated differently. And so that's consistently throughout my life been a valuable experience. At some point in my adulthood, I became aware of how valuable that was. And I started to become pretty proactive about intentionally bringing more and more diversity into my network of relationships. And I still think it's a powerful thing to do. There's a whole bunch of people in this world that have very strongly held beliefs about race and racism in this country that do not know people of other races, like real relationships. They've never been in the home of a person of another race. They've never had a person of another race in their home. There's people that have strongly held beliefs about Islam in this country, but they don't know anyone that's an active member of that community. They've never been to that house of worship. They've never had a real friendship. They've never had a person from that group in their home. So I think a lot of these ideas and beliefs that we have about other groups of people are oftentimes underinformed, if not uninformed completely, and sometimes even misinformed. Getting to know real live human beings that are different from you, I think it's still one of the most valuable practices in this body of work. So I think to our listeners out there, as I implore you to broaden your horizons, to talk to people on a human level, get to know them and see that we're as different as we think that we are. So I applaud you for your take on that and your story. And I'm just going to wrap up. And you know, yeah. not only is it valuable to learn about those differences, but even those people that seem to be very different from you, if, if you have an actual relationship with them, what you're going to find out is that you got a whole bunch of stuff in common as well. And, th- and that makes the whole thing a little bit easier and a little bit safer. Yes. Love it. So Joe, thank you for joining us on the radio. I look forward to following a lot of the work that you do and reading more of your work. If our listeners out there want to see more of Joe, where should they go? 
Probably the easiest place to go to is my website, which is joegerstant.com, J-O-E-G-E-R-S-T-A-N-D-T.com. All my stuff can be found there. I'm also pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I'll also be, I think, part of the Work Human show in uh, May of 2020. So a few different places to find me. Great. So if you're listening out there and you have not gotten your ticket, come see Joe. Go to www.workhumanlive.com and... We hope to see you there because it's going to be probably well over 4,000 people and we're all trying to do good things out there. So thank you, Joe. I look forward to meeting you in person at the event and I hope you have a great rest of your day. You bet. Thanks for the invitation. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at Work Human Live in 2020, May 11th through the 14th in San Antonio. Visit workhuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2020. 